as I mentioned, this is it's a great privilege for us to, to have been uh, here at Lewis University for the, the 10th conference of the ECPR Standing Group. And I'd like to thank, of course, Vivienne uh, for, uh, for her presence here today. Uh, but also let me thank uh, Professor Thomas Christensen, who's been behind, uh, I should say the other round, he's been leading the organization of this, uh, of this event, as well as being the, the, the leader of uh, the Journal of European Integration, which is part and parcel of this initiative. And also let me thank Professor Sergio Fabrini for, for his precious work in leading the Department of Political Science. So let me go back briefly uh, to the, the content of, of Vivian, who is a Professor of International Relations and Professor of European Integration at the Boston University. I should say probably the German Professor of European Integration at Boston University, besides being a normal professor here at Lewis. Um, and I was saying that the topic is very timely because we all know that we live in, in a context, in, a, in an era where populism and discontent is pretty much infused. But as from the, from the, 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 the subtitles of the end's lecture, we are facing, we're addressing different forms of populisms. We have a variety of populisms, which, by the way, have been somehow overlaid with the crisis which has been put forward by the, the COVID-19. So the current situation is somewhat difficult and we do need perspectives, novel perspective to not only to address it, but actually to understand, uh, or at least attempt to understand what, what the, which are the different dimensions, which are the, the important dimension of these populisms and try to address them. Or probably I should say using a, a terminology which is very close to Lewis, act upon such issues. And let me close by saying that uh, the, the perspective that BVN is going to be sharing with us, um, again, is very close to what Lewis or how Lewis understands social sciences. We do think that, of course, we academics, we should offer methods, approach, perspectives. Um, when it comes to, to social sciences, to the topics of social sciences, but also we do underline the fact that uh, the social sciences that we do produce in the clues should be, say, inverted commas, actionable. So, so that would allow policymakers, our students, and imagine practitioners, politicians to act upon the world, act upon reality, relying upon what we can offer using our research. Let me stop here. Without further ado, I'll uh, leave the floor to our speaker. Thank you again for uh, for being with us. I'll uh, pass the floor to the word to, to Thomas now. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you very much, uh, Andrea, and uh, dear Vivian. Welcome, welcome to, to, to Louise. It's indeed a pleasure to welcome you here today. Uh, to this hybrid event. We had Ron and Luis, uh, well, we had hoped to be last year. And while those plans had to be changed more than once, we do look forward to welcoming everyone for the 11th Standing Group Conference here in June 2022. Many thanks to you, Andrea, for offering to host uh, our conference last year. Um, for everyone here at Luis to uh, do all the work uh, that was already put in for, for the conference that had to be cancelled in 2020. Uh, everyone who did the work now to make it possible here today and i'm sure for all the support we can count again on again next year uh, i'm pleased to say though that this virtual conference is uh, to all intents and purposes a considerable success we have almost 500 participants a large number of very interesting panels 
And from what I see myself and the positive feedback that we have received, things are going very well. We owe a debt of gratitude to the 40 section chairs who've had a lot of work um, making the paper selections last year, and then many changes to deal with in this current year. Um, many thanks to our chair, Virginie Girondon, uh, who has been at the center of everything this year to keep it all together. And also to the colleagues, Ola in particular, at ECPR Central Services, who've handled all the tricky technical and procedural issues so well. I'm pleased to say that uh, we have another highlight this afternoon with the keynote lecture now. Uh, thank you, Vivian, for accepting our invitation and for coming to Rome to give this lecture in this hybrid format. You are actually double-headed as a speaker here since the conference keynote is also the fourth annual lecture of the Journal of European Integration. In the journal team, Olivier Costa, Maya Cross, Anna Junkers and myself thought it would be great to have someone of your stature to give an annual lecture this year on a subject as pertinent as the rise of populism. And after you kindly accepted our invitation, Virginie and the other members of the Standing Group's steering committee also thought it would be a great addition to the conference to include this lecture as a keynote. We very much look forward to your talk, and JEI will then be pleased to publish the article based on the lecture later this year. Vivian, of course, requires no introduction. She's one of the leading scholars of European integration and of democratic governance. I will not try not to summarize her achievements or her CV in the little time that I have, but she has, of course, had a major impact on the study of politics in Europe and contributed massively to our understanding of how democracy operates, and especially both at the EU level and at the national level. Vivian introduced key concepts such as discursive institutionalism and throughput legitimacy to the field, which have helped all of us and many students to illuminate and better understand under-researched dimensions of the political process. Vivian is a truly transatlantic scholar. She holds a chair at the Pardee School of Global Studies at Boston University, where she also is founding uh, director of this Center for the Study of Europe. But she's also a frequent, and apparently these days, semi-permanent visitor to Europe. She's held uh, visiting positions at all the most prestigious institutions uh, on, on either side of the pond, Oxford, Harvard, EY, Max Planck, Sciences Po, you name it. The list also includes, we are proud to say, Louise, where she's been teaching uh, for the past 10 years various courses um, at the School of Government. And as Andrea already said, we are proud uh, that Vivian accepted the title of Honorary Professor at our institution this year. Vivian, thank you again for coming here, and we are very much looking forward to your talk. The floor is yours, please. I think is this is it? Yes. Okay. So thank you very much for this lovely introduction. I'm delighted to be here. And by here, I mean not anywhere, not virtually, but actually in Rome. This is probably my first trip in a very, very long time for many people. So delighted to be here, um, in particular at Lewis and for the ECPR conference. Wonderful honor and privilege and pleasure to be giving this lecture. So, in this uh, Journal of European Integration annual lecture, rather than providing you with yet another theory on populism or even more empirical evidence, what I'm going to be doing is building on existing scholarship while shifting the lens to focus on the ideational and discursive dynamics of populist power. 
So I define populism as at its core, the dispersive construction of discontent. It's as an, it's an us versus them anti-elite discourse in post-truth post language used by charismatic leaders claiming to speak for the people, to give expression to people's grievances, economic, social, and political, by mobilizing them via real and virtual networks of support, disseminating their ideas via social and traditional media in order to win elections and then to govern different, differently, to undermine liberal democracies or possibly to revive it. So that's how I define it in a very, very long sentence. Sorry about that. Um, but in terms of methodological theory, I use the discursive institutionalist framework of analysis to consider four, the four main features of the discursive construction of populism that fuel the ideational discursive power of populism today. And these are the message, the messenger, the medium, and the milieu. In my talk, I will be discussing all four features of populism's discursive construction of discontent. And then at the end, I'll add um, a discussion of why, how this provides the power, the basically the dynamics of populist power. But that will be very, very brief. Um, but first to introduce the topic. Now, populism is actually a very challenging subject, if only in terms of keeping up with the literature nightmare, I should say, uh, or great pleasure, perhaps I'd say better, in terms of reading all of the literature, which is just immense. So there are many questions that come out about populism. So first, is it because of the past decade, decade of major crises? Eurozone, migration crisis, Brexit, not to mention the COVID-19 pandemic each on its own would have been enough to trigger what has come to be known as the populist revolt. But many of the problems underlying these crises, of course, as we know, have been going on for a very long time, during which there have been prior crisis moments, none of which generated the kinds of responses of populist responses we see today. So the first question is, so why now? Why in this way? Is it about the structural sources of populism, the slow economic slide of the working classes, the rising social concerns of the middle classes, the increasing erosion of political institutions and diminishing trust in government? Is it about the structures or is it instead about the presence of a new breed of charismatic leader able to express the people's discontent with the elites in ways that resonate emotionally as much as rationally? And then who are these populist leaders and their parties? Are they mainly on the extremes of the nationalist right and the anti-capitalist left? Or can politicians even in the mainstream be called populists if they adopt the style and the rhetoric? Naturally, I'm thinking about Berlusconi. But if we only want to look at rhetoric, even Franklin Delano Roosevelt had a similar anti-elite discourse. And what about Bernie Sanders? Many of my friends would be very angry with me if I said Bernie Sanders is a populist, but you know. So these are important questions. So is it what they say or how they say it? Moreover, is it what they say and how they say it while on the outside or also what they do when on the inside, in opposition or in government. And once in government, 
Do populists necessarily undermine the institutions of liberal democracy, leading to an authoritarian drift? Or can there be sources of democratic renewal from populists? So as you can guess, as you've heard, many questions then, and really no single answer to the puzzles surrounding populist, populism. And you might ask, if, if it is all these things, then how do we define populism? Should we even use the word, which is more often than not employed as a term of abuse, although it can ease also be taken as a badge of honor? So definitions of populism abound from an attitude toward elites, a political style, a political ideology, a particular approach to policy, a characteristic of certain kinds of politicians, parties, political movements. But it's also used to define a way of governing, often badly. Moreover, while many scholars argue that populism invariably undermines liberal democracy, risking an authoritarian drift, others see populism also in more positive terms terms as a potential corrective to liberal democracy. So as a result of the many different and even contradictory definitions of populism, numerous of those who have abandoned the term outright, finding it too vague and all-encompassing, um, preferring to use anti-system politics, counter-revolution, and more. Others, in contrast, see the term as useful and necessary to describe this phenomenon in all its confusion, so to my mind here, rather than jettisoning the word, I offer a perspective that builds on all of these definitions while seeking to elucidate the phenomenon of populism in an original way. So populism is many things and it is one thing. At its core, it is the discursive construction of discontent. This is the lens through which I consider the variegated aspects of populism. The approach itself is discursive institutionalist, with its focus on the power of populist agents' ideas and contextualized discursive interactions. As such, I seek to elucidate the substantive content of ideas and the interactive dynamics of discourse through which populists have managed to activate the economic, social, and political sources of discontent. In so doing, I seek to investigate what I've already mentioned before, the four Ms. Message, messenger, medium, milieu. So just to briefly define these before I go into depth in each and every one of these. So I look at the content and style of the message, anti-elite, post-truth, with very different contract, content, sorry, given the many different varieties of populism on the extreme right, left, and what I call the radical center. Then it's the qualities of the messenger, Charismatic leaders, but also their organic intellectuals and close advisors, political parties, social movements, and activist networks, real or virtual, that reinforce, pick up, and convey such messages in, an unconventional, in unconventional ways. Then it's also about the nature of the medium regarding social media and or traditional media, how they resonate and to whom they are directed and how. And then finally, it's the characteristics of the milieu, in terms of the institutional context, the specific sources of discontent, and the situational logics. So there's sort of in a nutshell, my idea about what it is, what the discursive construction of discontent is all about. But now we look more deeply. So the message. So much attention in the literature on populism focuses on this first feature of populism, 
the style and content of the message. So first in terms of the style, populism employs, and this we all know, the rhetoric of us versus them, we the people versus the elites, the real people against the others to challenge the, the, the status quo. Um, Mandridge, Jane Mandridge and Stephen Macedo see this as a core conceptual concept. Sorry, concept as at the conceptual core of the concept. They see it across the literature and they did a quantitative study looking at all the, all the literature. Um, uh, Jan Werner Müller sees the claim of an exclusive representation of the people as a symbolic and moral appeal rather than any reflection of empirical reality since it can't be disproven. So again, it's about the people versus the elites. Uh, Pierre Rosenvalon, in a very interesting book, very recent book in French, but I think it's been translated, sees the style as embodying a deep philosophy of democracy and legitimacy. It's an electoral vision of democracy in which legitimacy derives only from the election uh, and therefore rejects intermediary bodies of liberal democracy, such as the courts and the press, as illegitimate because interfering with the general will. But in addition to this, he sees this style as, a as containing a unified vision of society, divided by what is common to the real people, incarnated by its values and in battle with its enemies, such that the real people are always the majority, regardless of any electoral arithmetic. And then finally, he sees it as an art of governing focused on values, not interests, and appeals to emotions not rationality, such that politics becomes a polarized war of values and thus liberal compromise is impossible. So I found and only recently discovered this book, it's only just out, but I think it's very useful because we often think of this as, as sort of empty rhetoric. In fact, the rhetoric, the style itself reflects a deep discourse, uh, sorry, deep philosophy. But in tandem with the anti-elite style of discourse comes a post-truth universe. So this is about all-out assault, assaults on expertise, unbiased facts and truth via the new uncivil language of politics, the fake news circulating by the me media to create this post-truth world. You know, just to give you a few examples, you know, think of Pim Fortine, one of the first who talked about the need to be intolerant of the intolerant in order to protect our tolerant society. What? But it worked. Or think about something closer to home, Beppe Grillo with his Vafanculo rallies. To be polite in English, I'll say the F yourself uh, movement um, in major piazzas across Italy. And then think about Jobbik, an extreme right party, um, that creates its own institutes to hybridize uncon uncontested facts and build on conspiracy theories. But finally, we're in Italy after all, a favorite poster, because posters is not just words, but also images. A favorite poster of mine, which uses political correctness against itself, is the Italian Leganor poster in the 2009 European Parliament election campaign, where you see an image of a Native American chief in full headdress with a cut line reading, they were subject to immigration and now they are on reservations. Think about it. Again, a complete putting political correctness on its head as an anti-immigration 
poster. So it's about posters, it's about ideas through the rhetoric um, and the language, but the post-truth, post, importantly, the post-truth language plays on emotions as well as psychology. You know, exaggerate lying is very effective. Exaggeration, hyperbole, say, of the number of migrants entering, entering the EU or the cost of the EU per day to the UK, as in the Leave campaign. Um, uh, basically, in, in, in the psychologist Kahneman's um, terms, it's an anchoring technique because it leaves the impression in the listener's mind that a large number was involved, even if not that high. And if you think about how the Remain campaign then responded, no, 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 it's not that high, it's only this. And people are saying, wait, that's a lot of money. So again, lies, and then lies, even if people don't believe the lies, it stays with them as kind of true, even if they know it's lying. So there's a psychology behind it, and this kind of post-truth language that's also very important. Um, but beyond this, and leaving aside now the post-truth, whatever the strategy, however, you know, whatever the post-truth psychology, um, or even the rhetorical strategies of us, us versus them, the discourse brings together people interested in a given set of ideas. So if we think about just the role of ideas here, um, there are a variety of ways in people talk, talking about it. Um, Beno and Cox, for example, talk about ideas as coalition magnets with ambiguous or polysemic characteristics that make it attractive to groups that might otherwise have different interests. Um, the Referentiel School, talk about a, that, so that's Bruno Jobert and, and Pierre Muller, talk about frames of reference, the référentiel, that naturally draw people together by the common understandings that form the basis for common action. Um, but think about sort of critical discourse theory. Think about Ernesto Laclos, who talked about ideas as conceptual anchors, as empty signifiers that stand as a universal representation for all other demands to which it is seen as equivalent and which can therefore also be a way of bringing people together. I give you three examples from three, three different parts of the literature to show you that, 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 that many people have theorized about the way in which the ideas themselves bring people together act as magnets, as anchors, or whatever. And you, you can see it as examples in terms of slogans, take back control, um, the empty signifier, globalization, or long phrases. Since we're in Italy, I'll keep using Italian examples. Salvini at a rally. Next year, so this is about the European parliamentary election. Next year's election will be a referendum between the Europe of the elites, banks, finance, mass migration, and precariousness versus the Europe of peoples, work, tranquility, family, and future. All of these are very important um, uh, rhetorical strategies. I'm still on the style, which I means I have to speed up here. Um, style of message is really important, but of course, content also matters. And while the style, style unites all populist parties, the content differs greatly in the policies and the programs not only on a continuum from the extreme right to the left to the extreme left, but also in different national contexts. So here, and important to make a distinction, whereas the style 
reflects a strong core philosophy focused on the representation of the people against elites. This is Roson Vallon. The policy content is generally is seen as generally thin. This is Casmuda on the thin-centered ideology. But what he's really focused on is that the policy content pragmatically picks up on the general themes of popular discontent in context-specific ways. So content of the message is very specific often and very differentiated. So on the extremes of the right, um, they've, they, they've been mainly concerned with the socio-cultural issues, pledges to control borders to migrants, to defend the welfare state for their citizens, disparate cultural concerns, anti-abortion, anti-gay marriage or adoption, climate skepticism, anti-vax, um, the Lega certainly, AF, AFD in Germany, um, but beyond that, it's also important to see that in the extreme right, in particular, you see a transition, an important transition uh, from a hard right to a softer, more pragmatic populism. So Marine Le Pen, who de-demonized de the party, or Salvini, who took Bossi's hard right regionalist nativist Leganor, Leganor um, which was against the Southern European, Southern Italians, to Lega, which becomes anti-immigration, so anti-further south. You know, very important to see these transitions for parties, existing parties on the hard right that became softer, at least in appearance, at least in language. Um, but when we, when we turn from continental Europe to Central and Eastern Europe, all bets are off. You know, is this have they gone from pragmatism back to the hard right is the question. You know, Kaczynski himself talked about counter-revolution, talking about Poland. And what do we do with Hungary? You know, this certainly looks uh, as an authoritarian, authoritarian drift such that uh, we have to ask, can this still be called populism? Uh, based on the style, or if this has morphed into something else. I think Luke von Middelart calls it an electoral autocracy. Gar uh, Timothy Gartnash talks about a one-party state. So massive shift. But this is where we've only been talking about the extreme right. The extremes on the left have tended to focus primarily on the socio socioeconomic issues with promises to decrease inequalities and prom promote redistribution as they blame capitalist elites for the ravages of globalization. It's in, in French, in, in French, it's, it's Jean-Luc Mélenchon, Insoumise, um, um, but in Greece, it's Syriza, in Spain, it's Podemos. Um, and so extreme left, extreme right, extreme left, but now I have another category, which I call the radical center, which if you think of an axis right left, it's up here because it draws on the extremes of the right and the left. Um, and here we have populist parties that have embraced left-leaning redistrib redistributive rules while taking right-leaning anti-migration stances along with occasional cultural issues and also generally been keen on direct democracy. So I see this as very unstable. So I had three in the categories, only of which has remained standing. So the three uh, five-star, uh, AFD in its early phases, so Germany, and UKIP in the, in the UK. And importantly, they were all part of the same European parliamental grouping initially. 
Five Star Movement is the only one left standing. And for how long is the question? Um, but, but again, um, very similarly, these all, all of these parties have different kinds of national content. content. So although I've talked about extreme right, extreme left, and radical center, one has to recognize that they are all very different within national contexts. Okay, that's all on the message. So what about the messenger? So because of the personalized style of the discourse, with the populist leaders speaking in the name of the people, separating the message from the messenger is often very difficult, nor is it actually necessary, since the leaders not only articulate the, mes the message, but equally embody it, at the same time that we really do need to talk about the messenger. Um, so one of the characteristics is charismatic leadership as a major quality, but of course, charisma is naturally in the eye of the beholder. Um, think of Beppe Grillo, very different from Berlusconi. Um, Babis in the Czech Republic is more like Berlusconi, so much that he's been called Babisconi. Um, they could all be seen as charismatic, but Kaczynski, you know, the second Kaczynski twin who lived with his mother and his cat until first the one and the other died. Charisma is not there. Uh, and what about Boris Johnson? How does he get to be seen as charismatic? But okay, leaving that aside. Um, what are the characteristics of charismatic populist leaders? Roger Eatwell has a really interesting post-Viberian definition. Um, it's people, it's leaders with a radical mission that involves founding myths and missionary politics, a personal presence, which really has to do with the personality. Um, symbiotic hierarchy, leader of the people and simply, simply being one of the people. And Manichaean demonization, targeting of enemies, et cetera, as in the messages that we've just discussed. So charisma is one, authenticity. We hear that a lot. Um, that links, links to the common sense simplicity of the message, as well as the combative style of straight talk that blames the other for all the ills of the country. Catherine Fischi, or I guess we're in Italy, Fieschi, um, um, sees this as functioning, the authenticity functioning in three ways. One is to brand everyone else as a hypocrite, um, uh, as, because incapable of understanding the real people. Two is as a blanket excuse to speak one's mind in highly disruptive ways, including to lie and cheat without shame. So this takes us back to post-truth. And third, to show that instinct and common sense trump reason and interest-based rationality. So there are clearly many different examples of authenticity, buffoonery, if we're thinking about Boris Johnson, the politics of offense, if it's Geert Wilders, and if it's Marine Le Pen, it's her reinvention of herself and her party over and over again. So very different ways in which to think of authenticity. So populist leaders are thus the mouthpiece and the embodiment of the popular movement and the parties that they incarnate. But importantly, they do not act alone. You cannot forget that they depend on activist networks of expertise to provide them with intellectual support as well as material resources. Think about Beppe Grillo, who was nourished by the strategic advice as well as the deep pockets of Gian Roberto Casaleggio. You know, think of his with the online platform Rousseau. Um, 
Viktor Orban, who's been supported by a network of business associates who, who took over all rival media, enabling Orban to largely control the airwaves. Marine Le Pen receives money from Russia, loans, she says. Uh, she uses her, uh, her MEP salary to fund local activities until she's supposed she gets caught, but so what, she says. Um, and she's relied on a very close associate for advice on what to do until that advice lost her the presidential debate against Macron in the 2017 election. So very important to note that these charismatic leaders do not act alone. They are certainly charismatic and authentic, but they have, they get their ideas actually from their organic intellectuals and also from the movements themselves. Support is, because this is not just top down, it's also bottom up via social movements. It can also be transnational. If you think about Steve Bannon's failed attempt to set up a foundation to provide advance and financial advice and financial support to extreme right party leaders, Le Pen, Salvini, et cetera. If I remember correctly, I was actually at a meeting of Steve Bannon debating Calenda here in Rome before the pandemic. So that's years ago. <laughs> it was probably only a few months before. Okay, so that's the messenger. What about the medium? In addition to the messages and the messengers, we also need to consider the medium, which in the famous words of Marshall McLuhan is the message. Populist ideas and discourse are disseminated via social networks, real or virtual, that attract followers while adding force to anti-system social movements and political parties. And of course, while these messages are generally spread in posts, tweets, or sound bites through the social media, they're picked up and amplified by the traditional media as the news of the day. So we've got to talk first of populist coordination via the new media. This is a kind of discursive institutionalist focus on the discursive dynamics of interaction. And one is coordination. Um, and so coordination comes in the new media and they've been inval invaluable to the populist creation of networks of dissent and discontent, of course. Facebook alone creates echo chambers of support as lots of people get their news, fake as well as real, from their friends sharing posts. Populists have relied more on the new media, such as YouTube and blogs, and on the social media, Twitter and Facebook, than have traditional parties. What I found out relatively recently is Jean-Marie Le Pen, way back in the 1980s, used the Minitel, a very old technology, but the precursor, the PC, he used that in the 1980s, Podemos initially faced down the hostility of newspapers and television outlets through their reliance on constant Facebook posts and YouTube channel streaming. Already said, Beppe Grillo launched the five-star movement on the internet and Salvini has a team of 20-somethings sampling public opinion on a daily basis, basis so as to assure that his tweets and Facebook posts fit with the national mood of the day. So there he is nuzzling a little kitten or eating a piece of uh, pasta, a, place of, a plate of pasta or a piece of pizza um, as there are images in the regular newspapers of dead children, migrants on the beach 
or as he's prohibiting humanitarian ships full of migrants and refugees to dock at Italian ports. So that's core, you know, basically that's the social media, but of course there's political communication to the more general public via the traditional media. And here, you know, it's not just, it's not just television, uh, CNews is the French, the newest French equivalent of Fox News, um, but it's also radio, talk, talk radio, uh, in Poland, Radio Maria. Um, and so there are the television channels themselves, but also they have play a role in amplifying the new social media um, messages. Tweets become the stories of the day. Um, and all of this, in most cases, we're talking about the extreme right, these reinforce right-leaning messages. Also because when you have debates on television, it's, it's balance means there's an extreme right person and someone from the center, and there's no one on the left. Um, but media communication in and of itself also benefits the messaging. Think of the short news cycle. 30 second sound bites means simpler messages. That favors populists who have simple solutions to complex problems. Build a wall, that's easy. Um, okay, and of course, because the media itself is has been massively commercialized, you know, this is all entertainment. And in particular, the mass media focuses on leaders' personality traits in order, and this, this is entertainment. So now finally, the milieu, all of this, messages, messengers, and medium can in turn have profound effects on the milieu in which populists operate and vice versa. Um, and actually this is, in political science at least, this is the largest part of the literature so far. So I'm actually just going to do this very, very quickly um, and very briefly. But it basically, this is about the, the literature on populism that delves deeply into the structural institutional causes of citizens' discontent. So they investigate the socioeconomic, socio sociocultural, and political sources of discontent and how they play themselves out in party systems. This is about people feeling left behind by globalization and Europeanization, people worried about a loss of status and the changing faces of the nature, nation, people wanting to take back control, un unhappy with mainstream parties uh, that are no longer responsive to their demands or concerns, unhappy with institutions that don't work, unhappy with politicians seen as corrupt in some cases, self-interested in others. So populist, and this is the important piece here, populist discontent has real causes and people are actually right to protest. So what about finally populism itself? What about these populist parties? and the dangers, to, um, the dangers to liberal democracy. And so what I wanna do in these final moments is focus on populists in power. And of course here, generalizations are difficult. The main question is whether it's the ideas or the institutions that matter the most, but just a word, you don't have to choose. Um, so the argument in favor of ideas focuses on the political divide amongst parties, populist in power on the extreme left and the radical center. So Syriza, Five Star, are more likely actually to respect the tenets of liberal democracy than the extreme right populists, Fides in Hungary, Law and Justice in Poland. 
That said, if we start beginning, if we begin to think about left populism in Latin America, Venezuela, then, hmm, then we may say, well, it can't be just about ideas. Maybe it's about institutions. And on the institutions, there are other generalizations that people have made. More mature liberal democracies with strong established institutions seem more likely to resist, resist illiberalism. So what we can say is however weakened the institutions in Italy and in Greece, given previous histories of centrist populists in power, they've still resisted more than younger democracies, in particular in Central and Eastern Europe. So the institutional, there's an institutional argument that is, involves differentiating countries in the core from countries in the periphery, with countries in the periphery more likely to to drift into authoritarianism as opposed to in the core. But you know, we should add other factors, and I've been talking about those. Leadership, experience in government is also important. And I, you know, just very briefly, I interviewed one five-star parliamentarian who described this steep learning curve in moving from outside to parliamentary opposition to governing, to governing party. And he himself expressed concern about populist, i.e. five-star leaders, inflammatory anti-system discourse, discourse, saying what, that they've forgotten, that they're now responsible for governing. Okay, there's more that I can say, but, but you know, this is interesting just in contrast to five-star leaders um, who initially, if you remember, said that this is just a scatola di, scatola di tonno, a can of tuna that can be easily opened and emptied of its contents. So you know, experience probably matters. And for this, you can say that, that extreme right parties have had a long experience in government in contrast to extreme left or radical center parties that have often come out of social movements and don't have that same experience but have seemed to be more willing to learn liberal democracy in contrast to extreme right. So finally, you may say to yourselves, okay, okay, this is all really interesting, but isn't she just engaged in a labeling exercise? Well, yes, I am engaged in a labeling, but, but I'm trying to make this to see this is about the discursive constructive construction of discontent. And I'm giving you the different ways in which this is constructed, but I also think it's important to, to theorize about the nature of power and the power of ideas and discourse. So to end on this note, with actually just a brief conclusion following if there's time, um, uh, Martin Carstens and I wrote um, recently about, or not so recent, but the power of ideas and discourse. So there's little room to, to elaborate here, but just very briefly. So beyond traditional forms of power in political science, which are coercive, structural, and institutional, um, we defined three forms of ideational discursive power. Persuasive power through ideas via discourse, coercive power over ideas and discourse, structural or institutional power in ideas and discourse. So I'm going to just illustrate, rather than define, I'm just going to illustrate in the case of populism. So persuasive power through ideas via discourse. This is the main way in which charismatic leaders, the messenger, 
inspire anti-system activists, develop a following, win elections with discourses, the message that resonate in their national context, the milieu. And they do this through their cognitive appeal to people's dissatisfactions, socioeconomic, sociocultural, and political, and their normative outrage against the elite, e.g., for example, is corrupt, self-interested, or against particular policies, immigration, globalization, welfare. So that's persuasive power through ideas via discourse. But there's also coercive power over ideas and discourse. This is what populists outside government accuse mainstream politicians and the media of doing. These are the enemies of the people who dominate the production and dissemination of information. Even as the populists outside of power actually seek to exercise that power by shaming or badgering governing elites into changing their policies in a populist direction. And of course, once in government, populists themselves may very well seek to control the media and other forms of information dissemination, either by accusing independent media of propagating fake news or simply by taking them all over, as in Hungary. Structural and institutional power in ideas and discourse, the third kind, is what populists combat while on the outside using uncivil language to break taboos, question long accepted truths, and challenge conventional worldviews. And at the same time that they do this, their own anti-elite narratives and frames may consolidate their supporters' post-truth worldviews and anti-system identities. And after a while, given the lived realities, even some of their opponents may come to accept the post-truth situation. Think about Brexit fatigue. And thus, structural institutional power in ideas and discourse is also extremely important. So you might ask, what is the alternative to all of this? Um, good question. <laughs> this is the biggest question for progressives, is how do you counter the populist upsurge with innovative ideas that fix many of the sources of major sources of discontent? How do they do this? It means addressing the milieu, the socioeconomic, socio-cultural and political problems. It means also not only that you need new messages, new ideas, but also better messengers, messengers, progressive leaders with a persuasive discourse, as well as charisma and authenticity of a different kind. Is there boring charisma? Truthful authenticity, boring charisma, is that Biden? Anyway, um, but instead of the discursive construction of discontent, what the world needs now is the discursive construction of consensus to build a, dare I say it, more contented world. So at the moment, COVID, the COVID-19 crisis is not yet over, but I think there's optimism. We can be optimistic. The Europeans finally began to address the socioeconomic problems that have only worsened with the pandemic by putting growth and investment at the center of the policy agenda while creating you know, the two taboo-breaking EU-level debt fund. But of course, the sociocultural issues remain, in particular since although the migration is closed, has, has slowed, migration crisis has slowed, it has not been settled, and the political issues continue to fester, in particular in countries like Poland and Hungary with the rule of law. So we're not over it yet, but let's hope that there is a response to the populist challenge. It is not the populist construction 
discursive construction of discontent, but the progressive construction, discursive construction of content. Thank you. Thank you so much, um, Vivian. Sergio Fabrini, our dean uh, and, and friend uh, of yours, will, will chair the discussion. I just wanted to say to the online audience uh, that, of course, we have now Q&A uh, open in Zoom. So you post your questions there, please. Um, and we will then uh, try and group them together and put them to Vivian uh, via our, our assistance here. So feel free to put your questions, perhaps try and keep it short. Um, and, and Sergio kindly agreed to moderate the discussion. Sergio, please. Okay, thanks very much, uh, Vivian, for your uh, very complex, articulated uh, interpretation of populism. So ju just to introduce the, uh, the conversation among us, uh, let me make um, three preliminary um, uh, comments. The, the first one is, uh, when you have to, if you say the, the discursive uh, construction of discontent. Um, the fact that you use, or the fact that the populist comes out of discontent uh, does not that reduce the, the quality and the content of idea that they can convey. Uh, so when, when you discuss about discontent, certainly you need to, to use a specific ideas and narrative. Um, so also the, 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 the number of the possibility that you raise at the very end of your presentation about the rule of idea, indeed there is a preselection of idea that populists can, can use because they use only idea uh, congenial with the construction of this content, not with the, um, building up of a, uh, a governing program or a political program. So, so this content reduce already um, the, the, the size and the number of idea. In a way, this content is in itself an idea. Uh, so, and, and, and that probably uh, obliges you to deal with uh, some methodological questions that are relevant, I guess. Uh, the second point that I would like to raise is that you did your um, uh, wonderful presentation uh, without never uh, commenting on European integration. So you never use the term European integration. Uh, do you think there are no correlation, I don't want to say causation, but at least correlation between the deepening of the process of European integration, especially uh, with the Euro crisis, uh, with the migration crisis, and the formation of that discontent. In a way, is populism, populism is, is, a, is a permanent feature of democracy. No doubt about that. It was it started in, in the US because of the oldest democracy in the world, at least among the established democracy. So populism is not new for us. However, the populism of the, of the last decade is not connected to democracy per se as the 
populism of the turn of the 19th century in the US, but it seems to me connected to European integration. And what is this, the spatial nature of conditioning, of constraint that European integration introduced in the populist construction of this content? And as I said, I don't, you know, this is my, there are many ideas, many questions that you, that you raise. So the third question is about the quality of the messenger, right? You, we discuss always about uh, populism coming from the left and populism coming from the right. And they have different sources. Probably they have also, they reflect different training, um, uh, let's say, uh, training education of those leaders, um, but they, they go in the same direction. They call into question the established elite, institution, uh, constitutional principle, and so forth. However, when they go to power, they uh, behave and they perform in a quite different way. Uh, because the populist, let's say, coming from the left, uh, basically fail, Syriza fail, Podemos is failing, uh, Five Star Movement is basically disappearing, where the populists coming from the right uh, transform themselves in, uh, in what we call in the literature as a plausible sovereignist, and they show to be quite effective in governing Euroskeptic, Euro, anti-Euro uh, movement, and so forth. So does that uh, imply that uh, the, uh, say, the evaluation that uh, right-wing populism is more congenial with this content than left-wing uh, populism? Uh, so the left-wing populism, once it go to power, should do something, and it appears immediately that they are not able to do something. Um, Pablo Iglesias decided to retire. Um, Five-star movement is a dramatic example of inability to, to do something. Well, on the right side, you have a different movement, and they institutionalize themselves in a more significant way. So how would you explain this different outcome? Okay, thanks. I just to start the, the, the uh, conversation, um, you want to answer, I think you want to answer, okay. Yeah, I think if that's, if that's okay, I'd like to answer them because these are wonderful questions. Um, and and um, yeah, and have a whole range of possible answers. So that could take very long, but I won't. Um, so first, uh, your really interesting point about the discursive construction of discontent um, confines populists, but actually it doesn't, you know, sort of in, it, what they're doing is how do they get support? They, 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 they are building on, let's call it the milieu, the political, the socioeconomic, sociocultural and, so, and political sources. And all they have to do, this is Kasmuda's thin-centered ideology, all they have to do is say, we hate this. And uh, in the sort of that common core, use the anti-elite discourse. 
all the elites are corrupt, terrible. They're, so they don't have to develop ideas while on the outside, or not many, although they often do. You get anti-vax, you get anti-migration, but you know they. But what happens is when they when they um, when they are closer to power and then gain power, they do develop political programs, policy programs, and there um, it's there's there are many ideas that come that come out that that don't necessarily build on the consent, con discontent, but actually create new forms of discontent. And I suppose we see that more on the extremes of the right. They've been more successful at that perhaps than on the left. Um, EU integration, this was simply, I couldn't, it, it's in the paper, but the paper is extremely long. And uh, I thought I would just cut out the discussion, but, but I do talk about Europeanization. When I talk about globalization, I also talk about Europeanization, and um, this is all about the problems. The sort of the discontent is largely in Europe about Europeanization and globalization that has come through Europeanization, because in some sense, Europe is the most globalized of regions in the world uh, as a result of European integration. I mean, much more so than the US, for example, let alone other places. And, um, and so yes, populism in the past decade is totally, is, is deeply connected to European integration, and in fact, and to the Eurozone crisis. So in my book, here's a plug, uh, Europe's crisis of legitimacy, governing by rules and ruling by numbers in the Eurozone, chapter 10 relates directly to the way in which the Eurozone crisis has fueled the rise of populism both on the extremes of the right and extremes on the left. And you can see, and there's lots of scholarship on that that show um, what happens, uh, sort of there's a slow rise of um, populist support. You know, you see it in the 90s, it plateaus in the 2000s, and the minute the Eurozone crisis hit, it's, hits, it goes straight up. Um, and then migration crisis hits and it goes up again not quite as fast, which suggests that all of these crises are tremendously important and that the Eurozone crisis just added fuel. On the extreme right, they were always anti-migration. Now, great, they've got yet another topic, the Euro um, and anti-EU. I mean, it were always somewhat anti-EU, but this just gets bigger. Uh, and then, you know, refugee crisis. Oh, good, we can go back to migration again while continuing the anti-Euro. Um, but leaving, leaving the EU and even the Euro after Marine Le Pen's crash and burn in 2017 and then Brexit meant that most extreme right and extreme left parties sort of backed off from saying, we're going to leave the EU or even the Euro. We're just going to have a different Europe, a different EU, and, you know, values. And that's um, in particular on the extreme right. And then finally, uh, your <clears throat> last question about um, uh, the quality of the messenger um, and, and about um, the difference between the, the left and the right. I think that's a really interesting question and I need to think about it more, but my sort of first initial response is, why has the left failed? Has it failed? I mean, it seems to me the extreme left rose because of the failure of social democrats. There needed to be another kind of response there. Um, 
and the failure of the social of, of, of the social democrats the center left is they began doing exactly what the center right was doing it was you know tweedledee and tweedledum in terms of eurozone policies in terms of austerity structural reform policies and the center left was blamed much more by its own uh constituents than the center left than the center right and so it seems to me that, that we've got Syriza, Podemos, et cetera, were very much a response to the Eurozone crisis and the failure of the center left to protect the citizens. And so they came in. And you know, Syriza, for all its failings, didn't do too bad a job given that it couldn't do anything else. And it is now, it is now the new center left party and Pasok is gone. I mean, I think that's really important. Um, and Podemos, you know, that's, a, that's another story, but the social Democrats are kind of back in Spain, but you didn't mention Portugal, which is, I think, an experiment that's been extremely successful where the social Democrats, the center left is back in with support from the hard left. That's, and, and that's been working and they did it since 2015 and managed to skirt the Eurozone, you know, the European semester requirements as well. So I think, you know, it, it's not all over for the left, but it may be that we're really talking about the quality of the extreme left that is, means that they're actually truly democratic populists. They have an inclusive message as opposed to the exclusiveness of of the extreme right. So I think there we have to think about them more and differently. But then on the extreme right, it remains. So why does it remain? Because it's more congenial with discontent? No, I think that they're better at scapegoating. You know, so they say, we don't like this, and now it's all the immigrants' problem. And in a way, it takes away from the economic message of the extreme left. They're basically saying it's you know, the extreme left is saying you've got a problem here, increasing precarity, increasing inequality, poverty. We need to do something about this. And the extreme right says those are all actually it's 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 migrants. They're taking your jobs and they don't want to deal with the economics for a whole range of reasons, sometimes because they're supported by the petit bourgeois, small shop, shopkeeper, sometimes because they keep a kind of a flat tax. This is Salvini. I mean, it can be any number of reasons, but there's another piece and that has to do, and this is, this is Dan Ziblatt, who's done wonderful work on conservative parties. And, and I think the dynamic there is that the conservatives have been chasing after, you know, sort of center-right chasing after the extreme right and repeating those messages and becoming populist themselves. This is Mark Rutte in the Netherlands as much as conservatives in, in various other countries, especially on the anti-migrant thing. Well, it doesn't help them. You know, it just means that that reinforces the power um, of the extreme right. Because, you know, basically it's Marine Le Pen says this, you know, they all say, look, they're saying the same things we are. Eh, vote for the real thing. So I think another piece of the extreme right support has to do with the weakness of the center right. So we're back to, but you know, there's no time to do this. We're back to talking about actually the problems of the mainstream parties and their failure to deal with all of these underlying causes of discontent. So this is about the milieu. 
This is about the socioeconomics, the sociocultural, and the political sources of discontent. This is a failure of mainstream parties to recognize that we were going into the wall. And I would say, you know, neoliberalism, perhaps in the 1980s, you know, this was the answer to the previous crisis. But whatever one might say about how they changed and improved the economy, it's gone way too far with hyper-globalization, with hyper-Europeanization, and not then dealing with citizen discontent. And this is, of course, in terms of the sources of, or the, 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 the philosophy of neoliberalism itself, which is, can be said at extremes, anti-democratic. You know, technocrats are much better than you know, democracy because it's dangerous. Well, what we've seen is that increasing technocracy has lead to popular revolt. And I suppose I've gone on way too long there. So I'll open up to uh, thanks, uh, thanks a lot. Um, you, do you have questions? We, we have. I will maybe okay. um, put some questions from the chat room uh, and keep posting, please. We already got quite a few. Um, so we have maybe four questions I can try and summarize. Um, two more about the concept um, that you discussed and two more about the impact on Europe. So Dora Hegedush is asking, um, for how for how long you think a populist leader who is in power can get away without getting labeled as an elitist himself? Uh, look at Orban, more than 10 years in power, creating his own media uh, empire and so on. So uh, what's the mechanism that you see that avoids someone like that uh, not to be seen eventually as an, uh, part of the elite himself? Um, obviously, echoes of Trump as well, I would say, but... Um, uh, and uh, Stefan um, Barrett is asking how both truth language um, plays to emotion. So what's the emotive element there? Uh, to what extent are populists not only playing by the rules of democracy, if they're appealing to emotions rather than, uh, let's say, reason or, 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 or rationale? And then if, if you don't mind, since time is uh, short, I will also maybe raise two questions that come from the chat room about the EU more specifically. So Olivier Costa is asking uh, what your expectations are on the Conference of the Future of Europe, which is an attempt by the EU to engage with the public. Um, to what extent is an online platform there, citizen forums and so on, um, a potential contribution to reducing discontent? Or, or maybe might it also go the other way? And then uh, a colleague called Hein is asking, what, what, what can Europe learn from the Trump phenomena and the milieu which made that possible? Um, um, or, you know, how could uh, Europe overcome uh, a, a Trump-like phenomena um, on this side, um, you know, considering the experience that the United States has? So these are the four yeah. first questions. Um, we hopefully have time for a second round, um, both from the chat room and from the room. So let's hold our fire on that. If, if Vivian can maybe answer those four. Yeah, great. Yeah, thank you um, for those great questions. So first on the concepts, uh, which is how long um, can populist leaders stay in power before they're labeled as elitist? Uh, so long as they're continuing to uh, complain about elites, and the deep state, if we think about Trump, uh, all you have to do is keep campaigning and keep doing the anti-system discourse and finding enemies. You know, think about Orban, 
It's George Soros is the one. It's George Soros funding NGOs. It's Central European University. It's, you know, basically it's all about, it's again, this style of rhetoric. It's finding enemies. And so long as you find enemies, you know, you're not, you're not labeled the elite because you are there and you are, you know, and this is, this is also the authenticity and the charisma. You are the people. You are as the same time that you speak for the people, but you are the people. You're one of the people and therefore you can't be an elite. Even if you happen to be Trump and have all gold furniture on the top penthouse and, um, you know, I mean, but that's, you know, when I talked about the power of ideas and discourse, that's, you know, about the persuasive power through ideas to convince people that all of this is terrible and you need the populist leader to be there. Um, but it's also kind of this, the, the sort of power, the coercive power, see? It's the populist saying, shut up, right? Thunder, for those of you who couldn't hear that, it's thunder. <laughs> Lightning's not striking, no, we're okay. <laughs> the populist in the sky, no, I didn't say that. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, it's, 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 I think the importance, it, it's, it's the way in which this charismatic leader uh, who, who, who appears authentic uh, manages to continue having a discourse that is maybe persuasive or maybe it's structural or institutional power in ideas. Because people come to believe that this is our fearless leader and no one else can do what this person does. So that's in ideas where you're blind to any other ideas and it's coercive power over ideas in the fact, in the sense that they control all the mass media. And they're trying to shut down all the social media so that no one gets any other information. So yeah, there really are enemies at the gates, barbarians at the gates. Um, so that's an important. So, and then how does post-truth play to emotion? So there are lots of ways and there's lots of psychological theories about this, which I, you know, no time to go into. But one that I really liked was um, George uh, Lakoff, who talks about Trump and talks about the intimacy that Trump creates uh, with his incomplete sentences. So most of you think that he's just inarticulate, can't speak, can't complete his sentences, but actually that performs a, an emotional function as well by creating a sense of intimacy as the listener completes those sentences for themselves in their head. Ah, we're one of, you know, he's one of us, we're one of them because we know what he's thinking. And it creates a sort of a, an emotional attachment way beyond everything else. Uh, okay, then, then on to the EU and thank you Olivier for this question. And I suppose you want me to say something positive about the conference on the future of Europe? <laughs> I'll do my best. Actually, I think it has tremendous potential, but I think most people are worried that it's, it's not gonna do much of anything and that it will actually make people feel more disenchanted. I think a lot really depends upon how much these online platforms are used, to what extent the citizen forums really work 
And then what leaders do, what these three institutions in charge do with all of this. But I think to put sort of to put a positive spin on it, I think what's, what's clear is that people of people, i.e., mainstream leaders, recognize that there are serious problems about about citizen involvement. And so at least this is a beginning, but I have my own suggestion in terms of the European semester and the recovery fund, which is tremendously important, but for the moment, these national you know, RRFs, uh, resilience and recovery fund plans are very top down. E the EU nicely leaves it very vague, but says, you know, invest in the digital transition, sorry, the the green transition, the digital transformation, and work on issues of equality. And then these national plans in each country um, are basically central, centralized and government. It seems to me if we really want to fix things and energize, use this money productively and energize national economies for growth, what one needs to do is decentralize the European semester bring in the regions, bring in local governments, bring in the cities, but also democratize, bring in the citizens, civil society, social partners. You know, and I think back, you know, if, if, if think of the 1950s in France where the plan was basically at the regional level to bring in the force vive de la société, you know, bring them in in order to create a kind of discourse. <laughs> Here we go, discursive institutionalism again, essentially, but essentially to create a conversation. So long as this remains a very highly centralized technocratic process, we've still lost. But so the Conference on the Future of Europe is a beginning, but there needs to be much more decentralization and democratization of all these kinds of decision-making, in particular in the Eurozone, on the economics. And then one can go from there. So if there's one problem with European integration, in particular in the Eurozone, it has gone too far without any proper solutions. The pandemic, the COVID-19 response has, in, has a potential for being a new beginning, but we've got to hope that more is done on the democracy front with regard to that. And then the final question is what can Europe learn <laughs> from Trump? Well, besides praying, thank God, uh, he's no longer there. There's actually one really interesting um, uh, thing to say about this, which is about institutions. Institutions matter, also matter as much as ideas and discourse. And if we, if we compare the um, response to the financial crisis and the Eurozone crisis, but you know, response to economic crisis, um, versus the democracy crisis, let's call it. Um, what, we saw, what we saw in 2008-10 is that the US, because of its institutions, strong government, uh, unified institutions, president, et cetera, was able to do a lot more, much, much more quickly to solve the crisis. Whereas the EU went on and on and on, right? And didn't solve it between its fast burning crisis, where it doubled down on the rules and then slow burn, where it slowly reinterpreted the rules. But if we look at the democracy crisis, 
the weakness of the EU institutions is its strength. In the US, an accident happened, or maybe it was an accident waiting to happen, but Trump gets elected and then he controls, you know, a strong central government and can make mayhem. In the EU, it's very weakness. There is no central government. You have elections at different times. Think about this. Brexit occurs and everyone's thinking, oh my God, and then Trump and everyone's like, oh my God, what's gonna happen? And then Macron is elected. So yeah, then you get the Salvini five-star, you know, Lega five-star, but, but still no one, you know, no one party, no one populace can control the EU. There are many populists, but there are also many mainstream politics and different elections bring in different. So that the weakness of the EU is its strength. It gives time to reflect. It gives time to push back. It gives time, time for my progressive, charismatic, boring charisma, charismatic, truthful, authentic leaders to come back. So we've got a hope. Um, with also with new messages and actually trying to fix the problems. We do have a, ma a major opportunity and we're, we've moved in the right direction with the COVID-19 response. And so what we have to do hope is that progressive policies will continue. So for those of you reading Wolfgang Schäuble uh, in the Financial Times saying that debt is a problem, watch out because if the austerity hawks are back we're, you know, directly into a populist Europe. At the moment, I think we're still okay. Full of insights, very relevant for me. Um, I work as a, an historian here at Lewis University and I, I've been working on populism, especially right-wing populism and, and religion. Uh, so I have a, and, and first of all, the, your final, uh, the final part of your answer to Sergio's question was quite scary for me because uh, um, I, uh, don't like easy historical analogies, but when you said the conservative failure vis-a-vis -vis populist, I thought of the conservative or liberal Europe failure vis-a-vis -vis totalitarian regime or dictatorship in the interwar period. Besides, I have one question, one comments and one comment and a question. The comment is this: your forums are beautiful. Although I'm not really convinced that on the notion of charisma and charismatic authority applied to populists, not even to dictators in the 20th century. Because uh, if we go back to the Max Weber uh, uh, notion of charisma, it was completely different. It was some, uh, someone gifted, someone who certainly emerged out of the ordinary, but to solve the crisis, to go back to a normal track, to uh, um, uh, so, uh, and the example he gives, Max Weber gives, are Jesus and Pericles, so I don't think Trump or Orban can. Um, and I was wondering whether we can replace the notion of charisma or charismatic authority with the concept of trickster from mm -hmm. the anthropology, from, from Paul Raden, uh, because the trickster is this clownish, 
uh, a sinister figure who uh, captures, seize power in time of crisis, who um, uh, create form of discontent and endure form of discontent, further the crisis, do not want to solve the crisis. Uh, when um, in 1933, okay, so this is the, the comment. The question is, um, what is the discursive, the discursive construction that allow populists from the East and from the West? I'm uh, referring to the recent meeting of Salvini uh, and Orban, and uh, I don't remember the name of the Polish guy, I'm sorry. So this idea of creating a populist international despite their differences, which is the attitudes against Russia, the view on Russia, obviously, and also the fact that populists from the West, from either after the Brexit, have always sort of authorizing the East. You know, the Polish plumber, the uh, Romanian cherry pickers, not to say the Roma, Sinti, Gypsy, uh, uh, car thieves, uh, uh, and so on. So how they do this? How, don't you find paradoxical this sort of um, issue? Thanks a lot. Thanks. Yeah, very short. Yes, indeed. I know that's a great question and comment. Very, very, um, uh, very useful. And so on the historical thing, I, you know, I agree. That's a very worrying thing. Um, but history, do I need to quote this? History repeats itself, but first time is tragedy, second time is farce. Well, I'm not laughing very much, but it's certainly not. Um, but but I recommend to everyone uh, reading um, the novel entitled M uh, about Mussolini. I think it's just being translated into English. Um, Antonio Scurati, that's magnificent. And you get a sense of what the different, because for Mussolini, it's all about the style and the discourse, but it's the strategic use of violence. And that's not what we see here, at least not at the moment. And so I think we are in a different, this is a different moment. So it's, it's a different kind of, yeah, it's a different moment. I was about to say a different kind of populism, but I don't think we can call what happened in the interwar period populism. So strategic use of violence, anti-democratic um, leaders, et cetera. So I, you know, I think you're right. I mean, I talk about charisma because people talk about it. And Roger Eatwell is, is the one who, who's, whose work I've been referencing here, who sees it as distinctly post-Weberian. So it's not about the affective um, since he shifted, he's sh shifted it. Um, but I do like trickster, trick, trickster um, sinister figures, but, but uh, you know, I think I still think we've got to call them leaders, and we may not like them, but they're not simply tricksters. That sort of uh, is not enough. You know, Wizard of Oz is another evocative, um, but but no, I think I'll stick with populist, but populist leader because it's vague enough. But one can question whether charisma is right. I think you're absolutely right about that, and not all of them have it. As I mentioned with Kaczynski, still certainly doesn't seem to me um, as as uh, as having charisma. But finally, you know, how do they do it? How does Salvini talk to Orban and Kaczynski? Um, 
they're pragmatists. They're opportunists. Uh, they can say one thing together and in and then one thing to their publics. But it it's also not likely to last. Think about Steve Bannon, who tried to bring them all together and it fell apart immediately. And Marine Le Pen thought, you know, great, we'll get Steve Bannon here. But very quickly she saw that her own her own people didn't like it. And so she sort of backed away. So it's likely this is, you know, this is this, these these are strange bedfellows. And as soon as um, Orban and Kaczynski get accused of illiberal, you know, sort of basically breaking rule of law, Salvini's going to back off. No, 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 I'm a Democrat. I'm assuming. So, yeah, lots more to say, but I can tell we've run out of time. So. Okay. Uh Vivian, terrific. Thanks very much. It was a very intensive one hour and a half conversation. Thanks to the people here in the room. Thanks to the people who follow from uh, uh, outside in, on, on the air. Um, let me thank Thomas for the work he, he did for organizing this event and for making that event possible. And Isabel and Julia for uh, supporting Thomas uh, and the organization. And I think we can be very happy and satisfied about uh, this conversation. Thanks to everybody. Um, we see tomorrow. I think we could have another day of conversation and, and paper uh, and uh, workshop. Grazie. Grazie. Grazie a voi.